Um, sorry, I was just walking all over my room because my computer became unplugged. <laughs> but I'm back now. <laughs> We're having so many issues with computers tonight. I know. to the protagonist podcast i'm todd mack here with joseph dorowski and each week we look at a great character and a great story today we're talking about phil sheldon in marvels a four issue comic book miniseries that was written by kurt busiek and drawn and painted by alex ross the series was published by marvel comics in 1994 this series won multiple eisner awards including best finite series best painter best design and it was nominated for best covers and best single issue the series follows an everyman in the crazy world of Marvel superheroes, and all of the superhero events that happen in the background of Phil Sheldon's life are lifted directly from published issues of Marvel Comics across uh, multiple decades of Marvel Comics. They use various issues as kind of the background stuff. And there is a rather intense annotation for every issue that is referenced in uh, the back of my trade paperback of this collection that explains what every like battle that's happening in the background of Phil Sheldon's life, what issue that actually happened in. Wow. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I had an, have enough of a Marvel, like, history. <laughs> my, my, uh, horizon of expectations is pretty limited it's in, in Marvels, which is, which, but I actually still really enjoyed it, so. I think it'll be good Should to get both good. perspectives, cause I happen to be a touch more, uh, deep, uh, in my, <laughs> my familiarity with Marvel continuity. Just a tad. So, Joseph, if this was in 94, it'd be about 30 years from the real Marvel age, but they include World War II yes. stuff. So, so they cut back to the 40s? Yeah. So, quick history of Marvel Comics. Uh, during World War II, it was called Timely Comics, and they did have some superheroes that get carried into the Marvel Universe. So, uh, Captain America was a World War II comic book character as was Namor, and uh, this, uh, there's a version of the Human Torch that appear in this, and those are all kind of mar- uh, Timely Comics main superheroes from that era. The other main superheroes were published by National, which would become DC Comics, and that was Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, all of those. All, all of those characters started in the late 30s and early 40s. Um, and then Timely Comics kind of stopped publishing superhero comics in the 50s, and they did mostly sci-fi or monster uh, comics in the 50s, And then in their early 60s, they relaunched with superheroes and rebranded themselves as Marvel Comics. And that's when we get the shared kind of superhero universe uh, with the Fantastic Four was the first one. But then came uh, Iron Man, the Avengers, Thor, uh, Doctor Strange, all these other characters, uh, the X-Men, all these other characters that we kind of know as Marvel characters now. That really happened in the the 60s. And so this, this comic book, the beginning of it does start in the 40s with those World War II era, what's called the Golden Age, uh, the Golden Age superheroes. Got it. So when was the first time you read Marvels, or how did you how did you come to it? I think, I don't think I read it when it was first being published in single issues, but I think I read a trade paperback that collected them fairly shortly after it was published. The mid-90s was a, a heavy... Uh, period of my comic book reading and comic book collecting, as it was for many, many individuals, which is why all my comics from that era are not worth very much. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the, nice. the boom periods for the comic book publishing industry uh, was in the 90s. So I, I, th- I definitely knew about it when it was being published, but I think uh, the single issues were higher priced than the average issues because the production values were a lot higher and Alex Ross's art is expensive. <laughs> Um, they're also long. I mean, they're also like twice as long yeah. as a regular. So I don't think I bought the single issues just because 
I was, you know, a teenager and price point mattered and these ones were more expensive. But then when there was a trade paperback that kind of put it all together in a more affordable package, I got that. So it would have been sometime in the mid-90s that I read it. So tell me this. We build this just just now as a four-issue comic book. On Marvel Unlimited, I have five issues. There was a, like a point zero, or like a prequel half issue. The one yeah. the, it, that tells the story of this android human torch. That was not part of the original series of four. I think it was, or it might have been published like sometime in the middle or towards the end as kind of a bonus, bonus prequel issue. And it may have even been published through one of the comic book magazines. I have to double check that. Give me a moment and I will look into the recesses of my mind <laughs> to get some more information about that zero issue, which is not a full sized issue. I can, I know that. Well, I, the reason that I mention it is because, um, uh, you, this was you had recommended this as one of the uh, comics that we do, uh, actually a couple of months ago, and I sat down to read it, and I so I looked up Marvels, and I saw this one, this one issue, <laughs> and so I sat down and read it, and it's like eight pages, <laughs> and I thought, man, I I feel like I'm really missing <laughs> something here. It seems pretty thin, like yeah. I mean, the art's nice and, and it's kind of cool, but, but really, like, this, this, this is, jo- this is Joe's recommendation. Okay. Uh, uh, and then I found the other four and then I thought, oh, okay. And then I actually remembered that, that, that first one was there and then I went and read it today and then I thought, oh, okay, this all makes sense. All right. So in like the trade paper X, there's this, what's called an issue number zero that's put first. That was actually published after the four. Um, yeah. so they did the four issues and it was really popular and then they put out what was called an issue number zero, which has that brief prequel. Yeah. And then, it, uh, in that issue in the comic book forum, it also had, uh, a couple text articles and like 18 pages of Alex Ross art, like both his process and then some finished pinup pieces. Cool. Uh, so I think that was just kind of cashing in on the popularity of the series. They did one more special issue. Why not? Right. Yeah. The other thing that I was going to say about this about my background with this is um, there is a really good episode of the incomparable podcast, uh, which does kind of the same kind of thing that we do where they uh, just kind of run through popular culture. And uh, they did an episode on Marvels and kingdom come, which is also done by Alex Ross, uh, but it's about uh, DC characters. And that one was written by Kurt Busiek as well. Yeah. So it's the and same, it's same team. And it was actually published only a couple years later. Yeah, and they're both really good, mm-hmm. and uh, the conversation in, um, in that episode of The Incomparable is really, really good. So we'll put a, a link to that in our show notes. I guess we, we, I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but Todd, do you want to give a quick spoiler-free synopsis uh, in case Sh- anyone wants to hear that before deciding if they're going to read this? Sure. So this is the story of a guy named Phil Sheldon. It starts in uh, just before World War II. He is a, a photojournalist. A photo- uh, is that what we would call him? A newspaper photographer? Yeah. And he ends up spending a good chunk of his life taking pictures of superheroes. And uh, so we get to see the the sort of the superhero story through the eyes of this everyman who uh, takes pictures of them at different kind of key moments. Um, it, the art is beautiful. Alex Ross is one of the best in the business. This is, and, uh, uh, don't think of like cartoony style. This is fully painted panels. Uh, every single panel is a, a fully painted piece of art, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's as far from a polyp as you can, <laughs> as you can possibly get. 
Uh, it's it, these are yeah, like beautiful paintings. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's the story. If it, that sounds interesting to you, you can pause this. Hey, I actually I was talking to a reader the other day, and they said that they have some of our episodes paused because they're going back and rereading things hey. like like Wuthering Heights. So <laughs> oh, look at that. There you go. I didn't know if anyone so, actually did that, so it's good to hear. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Apparently, they do. So, uh, if that sounds interesting to you, you should pause this and uh, check out. We'll have links in our show notes to where you can uh, pick this up on Amazon. It's also available on Marvel Unlimited, which is a really, really great service if you're interested in comics. Even if you um, just want to read a few, you can pay ten dollars for a one month subscription and just read anything you can <laughs> for that one and month. You and can then read, <laughs> you can read a lot uh, of comics, and considering that. Uh, like to buy one digital comic is going to cost you, a, you know, anywhere from a dollar to a few dollars for, you know, a 12 page issue. 22 uh, page issue, usually. It's a super, super good deal. Yeah. Or even um, the, tra- I mean, the trade paperback, if you were to buy this, which I think it's beautiful, I have it on my shelf. I think it's like 15 bucks for the trade paperback, or, or the hardcover version is what they have out now, I think. But uh, again, the Marvel Comics Unlimited, it's like a Netflix service for reading Marvel comics. They have thousands of back issues on there and it's ten dollars for a month-long subscription yeah so anyway uh we'll have a link to that in our and when notes they, as when well they start sponsoring us we'll tell you more about that yeah <laughs> and for anyone who's not pausing to go and read this work you can help us out by either pausing this and giving us a review that does help us out to spread the word we have no advertising budget you are how we spread the word uh, and doing that through reviews or making mentions of us on your social media, Facebook or Twitter or any other form of social media that has come and gone. Uh, that would be appreciated. Or you can go to patreon.com slash protagonist and you can donate a little money that will help us to keep hosting this podcast and get some audio equipment we need. Daddy needs a new pair of headphones. So <laughs> 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 we would appreciate any of those forms of helping us out. So here comes the full spoiler uh, synopsis. In issue one, just before the U.S. enters World War II, Phil Sheldon is a newspaper photographer hoping to get sent to Europe to cover the war. In the United States, a scientist invents a robot that, through a rather significant design flaw, bursts into flame <laughs> whenever exposed <laughs> to oxygen. Uh, this is the first superpowered figure anyone has ever seen, and people freak out. Uh, in response, the robot is buried underground, but it later escapes and becomes a kind of pseudo-superhero. Phil uh, becomes engaged to a nurse named Doris, as more superpowered beings such as Namor, the Prince of Atlantis, begin to appear. And this causes Phil to question his worth in a world filled with what he calls marvels. And as a result, he calls off his engagement to Doris. When Captain America appears on the scene and is aided by the Human Torch and Namor in fighting the Axis powers, public opinion about the marvels turns more favorable. One day, uh, Namor and the Human Torch have a massive fight that ranges all over New York City. And in trying to get photos... Uh, Phil is injured and he actually loses one eye, but upon waking up from this injury, he proposes to his girlfriend. He kind of has made, can I, made peace with his role in the world. Can I stop you right there? Yeah. First of all, I just have to, I just have to say, this is the last like silly thing, but you have written a human torque. <laughs> I, I didn't write that. Auto, and at, auto first, correct at first I thought it said, at first I thought it said human twerk. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, then... I just had all kinds of crazy images in my mind. So. What, what superhero is that? <laughs> the human twerk. It's uh, <laughs> I think it's from that uh, Taylor Swift video. But uh, then the other question, the the actually serious, very very serious question that I have is: Is this human torch that's fighting Namor the same human torch uh, from the beginning that then joins the Fantastic Four 
Is it the same guy? So then are we assuming that no. Johnny Storm is <laughs> wait, a wait, wait, wait. robot? Uh, no. Okay. First first part, this human torch that has the fight with Namor is the same robot that's at the beginning of okay. the story. Uh, Marvel had a golden age, or, or Titan Comics had a golden age character called the human torch, which was a robot. It was an, an android, not a person. When uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby were relaunching superheroes for Marvel Comics in the 1960s and they were making the Fantastic Four, Stan Lee remembered the Golden Age character called the Human Torch. He'd been an editor for Timely Comics. So he knew about that character. And um, Stan Lee was not above borrowing ideas. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so he made one of the Fantastic Four burst in flames and called him the human torch, but it is not the same Android character, uh, in the years after kind of the Marvel universe became a more cohesive thing with continuity. They've introduced the golden age human torch as another character. Like that Android figure is still present in the Marvel universe, but oh, really? not, okay, not so, called the human torch though. So my question here is in this story, yes, we see the human torch at several different junctures. Is it, are, am I to assume that it's the same Entity or that from issue, a- Android Human Torch disappears, and yes, then when the at, Fantastic Four appear, that's uh, that's Johnny Storm. The is that, that is his name cr- Johnny Storm? Yes, that is Johnny Storm from issue two on. If you see a Human Torch, it is the Fantastic Four Human Torch. Okay. Uh, the Android one, Android Human Torch. I mean, for most of Marvel continuity, kind of disappeared after World War Two. Okay, uh, got it. Continue, please. Okay. Issue two. Jumping ahead to the 1960s, the world is enamored with superheroes who Phil refers to as Marvels. He even has a book deal to publish his most iconic photographs of the costume characters. There's a dark side to Marvels, though, mutants. Even Phil is scared of mutants, who he and everyone else view not as heroes that are there to save humanity, but a signal that normal humans are inferior and will inevitably be replaced by the next evolutionary step for humanity. Phil even joins an angry mob that throws bricks at the X-Men one night. However, when his daughters find a young mutant girl who is abandoned by her family... Phil's view on the, uh, views on the subject evolve, and he hides the girl in his basement. On the same night as the Fantastic Four's, uh, uh, or as uh, Mr. Fantastic and Invisible Girl's wedding, uh, who are members <laughs> of the Fantastic Four, which is a celebrity and paparazzi-filled affair, and kind of, kind of almost treated like a royal wedding. Uh, but on that same night, there's a panic about mutants that sweeps through New York City. The young mutant that Sheldon had at his house has left a note uh, saying that she was worried about Sheld- the Sheldons being hurt because they're housing a mutant, so she took some food and has left. And this is the same night as that anti-mutant hysteria is rampant and Phil never finds out what happened to the young girl mutant. That is so sad. Yeah, that's a, that's a brutal issue. That's the one that was nominated for best single issue. It's my favorite. Yeah. It's It's my favorite issue of the, of the bunch, but, um, man. All right. It's pretty sad. Issue number three. A few years later, Phil is putting in long hours and kind of neglecting his family, trying to finalize his book about Marvels. The public has become significantly more jaded about all heroes, not just mutants. Tabloids publish scandals about superheroes, and there's an air of cynicism about whether the heroes are actually helping the average person, and there's kind of doubt that percolates about any time uh, one of the heroes has had kind of a bad PR, and then something good happens, it's questioned whether this was staged to help them. Uh, in, in this environment, a giant alien called Galactus lands in New York and prepares to consume the entire planet. As the Fantastic Four battle Galactus, Phil decides it's not worth it to stay and take more photos. Instead, he walks home, uh, to his wife and children. And even after the Fantastic Four save, uh, the entire planet, Phil hears people complaining about superheroes and he snaps at a crowd of people. You people, what do you need? The world to actually end? Are you so busy digging for garbage that you can't even admit to yourselves that you're grateful? Look up. Why don't you look up for once in your lives? 
issue four. Phil's book has been published, and it is a huge bestseller. Phil thinks some people are buying it out of guilt because of how they disregarded the heroes, and at this moment, the Avengers have disappeared from the Earth, and everyone knows they're in another galaxy fighting to defend the planet. Phil feels uh, that he owes the heroes something, uh, and at that very moment, J. Jonah Jameson is accusing Spider-Man of murder because a police officer died during a battle Spider-Man had with Dr. Octopus. Phil decides to try and clear Spider-Man's name. In the process, he interviews Gwen Stacy, the daughter of the police officer who died. Gwen has notes from her father, who viewed Spider-Man as a hero. When Phil comes to the Stacy house to try and get those notes, he sees the Green Goblin carrying an unconscious Gwen Stacy away. Phil races after the Goblin, snapping pictures and having complete faith that Spider-Man will save Gwen because that's what heroes do. They save the innocent people. However, when the Green Goblin throws Gwen Stacy off a bridge and Spider-Man shoots a web to catch her, the abrupt stop to her fall breaks Gwen's neck and she dies. Phil becomes frustrated with his life photographing Marvels, and he decides to retire. He asks his assistant to finish the projects that they were working on, which included a, a potential sequel to the Marvels book and also a documentary. And he tells her, you've got the eye for it. Mine is gone. I lost it somewhere. But you, you're young. You're not tired. You can see what I miss. Make your doc- documentary, Marsha. But me, I've had a good long run, but it's over. And with that, Phil Sheldon uh, retires, much to the delight of his wife. The end. <laughs> All right. Should we dig into this? Yes. Uh, first note that I wanted to touch on, I, we already said it, but the Alex Ross art. Really, people, go, go Google Alex Ross art. <laughs> if, if you've never seen it, we'll have some in the show notes. But if you've never seen Alex Ross comic book art, it is a uh, kind of photorealistic painting. He does lots of, uh, he, he photographs models, like people come in and pose for him in the, in the various styles. So there, there's a lot of... Um, kind of human posing that goes with it. Some people critique it or criticize it for being a little stiff, but I just love it. I, I'm all about this Alex Ross art. I, 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 I feel it's just a, just a tiniest bit conflicted because as art, it's amazing. The first Alex Ross art that I saw, I think you showed me years and years ago is a, is an image of Batman with all the scars on his back. Yes. And it's, um, I mean, it's amazing, and just there's so much uh, meaning in it. You understand so much about uh, Bruce Wayne looking at this image, but but I've I've never I've never appreciated it as much in the actual books. I mean, as, as pieces of art, they're amazing, but as books, I feel like. I don't know. It's not. Uh, like, I wouldn't like the. Uh, are you talking like the the panel layout and the flow of the story feel? It doesn't quite work as well as looking at each piece individually. Um. Yeah, I think so. I think it just. I don't know. I, I think in a in a book. Uh, in the format of the book, I think I prefer just a different style, not not something so realistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but as art, it's amazing. I mean, I can think of other artists that we've looked at, uh, Cassidy, who did... Um, the Astonishing X-Men, right? Astonishing X-Men, and then who, did Cassidy also do... Who did a, a All-Star Superman? Did All-Star Superman. Quite light, and, and that's, um, you know, like, near perfection <laughs> to me. Just, uh, but it, it's, uh, and, it's not nearly as realistically rendered as what we have with Alex Ross. Right. And it, like far be it for me to criticize Alex Ross <laughs> because his art is is mind blowingly beautiful. But it just for some reason in the book form it doesn't quite work for me uh, to drive the narrative as as well as some other artists. I think that's fair. And I, I when I think about Alex Ross art, I definitely think first about 
his iconic what are called pinups, where they're like single panel, uh, you know, or, or paintings that are meant to be posters more than uh, parts of a coherent narrative. And, and, yeah. and, and that's what's most iconic for Alex Ross is, is those style more than uh, this kind of panel by panel narrative storytelling. As a fun fact, because that's sort of his, his thing and, and these iconic uh, single images of superheroes, there is a full life-size wax Superman statue that he has as a reference. It done based on his paintings of Superman. One right. of his wow. friends it was, uh, Matt, created one. Or, or, it, was, it was the wax museum did it. Was, was it? Yeah, but, the, whatever the famous wax, wax museum is. But yeah. but they, they based it on his art, not on any actor. So it's supposed to just be the most purely Superman, not you know Christopher Reeves <laughs> or Brandon Ralph. Or and there's a wonderful photograph of that huge, I mean, six foot something, uh, massive barrel chested Superman standing behind him while he's drawing at a desk. And it's, wow. you know, lit very carefully and everything. And it's, it's a wonderful picture of his Superman standing behind him. I'll have to find it and uh, put it in the show notes. Uh, let's see. Uh, other things I want to touch on. Um, th- the way this book is structured going from kind of the birth of the first Marvel superheroes with the Android Human Torch and, and Namor and Captain America in World War II and going through uh, the death of Gwen Stacy... In comic book history, those are kind of going from Marvel's what's called the Golden Age, which is the World War II era heroes, at, through what's the end of the Silver Age. The Silver Age is kind of the, the relaunch of superheroes in the late 50s and early 60s. It's, it's considered the start of the Silver Age of comics. And a lot of people who try and put this and you know, who, who try and lay this clear-cut ages on, onto the history of, of comic books, they say the death of Gwen Stacy is the end of the Silver Age. It's when... Uh, the Silver Age still kind of had this this jaunty innocence and, and kind of optimism about it, and the death of Gwen Stacy kind of entered a darker period. Uh, so it kind of bookends those two eras of Marvel comics. And um, the really interesting thing for me is mostly we don't we don't we have these superhero battles like the Fantastic Four fighting Galactus or Spider Man fighting Green Goblin, but none of them are the superhero's point of view. Every single one of these is just from this man on the street who kind of has this chaos running around them. Uh, the thing that I love about this is that, uh, that every man point of view and people saying like, man, I'm not going outside. A building might just fall right on me. And you think, man, if you, if we really did live in a, in a, in a world where superheroes were just crashing into each other all the time <laughs> in big cities, uh, the collateral damage is really uh, real and you see it in this way. And, and, uh, Phil, uh, he carries the scars from it. He lost his eye. He lost his eye, and then also, I mean, just emotionally, this is not a a perfectly whole man <laughs> emotionally. <No. laughs> um, yeah. What you're saying about the Everman, I, I don't know if it's going to actually go to series, but there's been announced that they're going to be at least filming a pilot of a a sitcom comedy that is set in an insurance. Uh, office in, in <laughs> I think it's in the DC superhero world, but it's, you're never going to see the actual superheroes. It's just the insurance people dealing with the fallout. That's awesome. <laughs> of superhero <laughs> fights, but in a kind of office-esque comedy style, not treating this seriously in any way. Yeah, it's almost like what you see in uh, in a- Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., mm-hmm. where after, I mean, they, they do these big lead-ups to the films, and then as soon as the film comes out, then you see... Uh, Phil Coulson and his team sort of picking up the rubble <laughs> after from Ga- it. Captain America Winter Soldier or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and this is even sort of one step removed from that. It's just totally regular people. Like, I mean, you can imagine how 
amazing it would be, but also sort of frustrating to to have these people come in and they will destroy your city and there's there's no repercussions. Yeah. For them. Mm-hmm. I mean only for the only for the people, but not for the superheroes. They just go on you know, to the continue, next adventure. Go on to, right. And you know, Namor can be a bad guy and do a lot of bad things, but then as soon as he decides that he's gonna be a good guy, then he just gets a pass. So <laughs> Namor's a really interesting one because in Marvel Comics he's he has been all over the radar of being a full-on superhero, a member of the Avengers, and being the villain that's attacking the surface dwellers because they're polluting his oceans, and all these. And at, I, can't, I cannot remember what writer did this, but at a certain point, I think it was sometimes in the 90s, a writer was trying to reconcile all these swings that we'd had with Ma- Namor, who is, in uh, his history, he's half-human and half-Atlantean, so he's, he's he can breathe air and, you know, live under the water. Uh, and they said it's, um, when he spends too much if he spends too much time underwater, he becomes like his, his Atlantean side <laughs> oh, takes over. Gosh. And if he spends too much time on land, he, he only cares about the surface world. And, and so it kind of has these massive mood swings because of his dual biology <laughs> to try to explain, like they're trying to explain why he's had these moments, like where he fights the human torch through all of New York city. And then he's helping the, you know, the allies in the next, you know, the next scene. Um, there's a, there's a great, uh, a great part in here where, um, after one of these moments when Namor, I think it's towards, I think it's in issue one where Namor and the Human Torch have had this huge kind of knockdown drag out thing through the city. And, uh, and somebody says, somebody's expressing that they're frustrated at what has happened. And, and Phil says, the storm doesn't pick up after itself. Mm-hmm. And that's, and really, I mean, he, it, it's, it's at that moment when he begins to see these, uh, these superheroes as sort of forces of nature rather than as people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, he really sees them on a different plane. Uh, and, and he's able to kind of come to peace with, with their existence in his world, uh, in, in a way that a lot of the other people around him struggle with. That, um, so the centerpiece of that first issue is this fight, uh, between the Human Torch and Namor that goes all through New York City, and he and, uh, Phil Sheldon and other reporters are just trying to tr- track it down. Like, they hear, they're at the Statue of Liberty, so they get over to the Statue of Liberty as fast as they can, and, but then by the time they're there, they, you know, they've moved over to the Empire State Building or whatever. Because they fly. Yes. Because <laughs> Namor <laughs> has tiny wings on his ankles. He can fly. <laughs> is that how he does it? Yes. <laughs> They're like two inch long wings on his ankles. This is the logic like a, of 1940s comics. <laughs> is that Mercury? Isn't, isn't Mercury yeah. the, the uh-huh. god that has the wings on his? Yep. Yeah. There you go. Definitely Martin. Uh, but that um, story is considered from the golden age. There was a fight between the human torch and the submariner uh, met and had a fight, which now is kind of, you know, standard. This is always going to happen. Uh, but that is considered the very first combo crossover of these characters. And there's this legendary story that it was the publisher who kind of had this idea like, ah, this one's fire and this one's water. They, they should fight. Uh, and he kind of, uh, some of this may be urban legend, but the, what I've heard is that he kind of said, I have it on my desk by Monday. And he said this kind of at the end of the week. And the artists uh, got in all their friends and they were doing rough layouts and their friends were helping to finish these pencils. And they, did the entire comic book overnight, oh basically, uh, you know, over the weekend, like they, they just made, got all the coffee they could <laughs> <laughs> and were drawing as, as fast as they could. Um, and I don't know how much of that is, is fact and how much is urban legend, but I, I've heard, read, read versions of that story in multiple wow. places that this was kind of on the whim of the publisher created almost over one weekend, an entire comic book was produced just to have the fire versus water. Wow. Crossover. 
Thank goodness for that, because we have had some good crossovers. There's been some pretty yes. terrible crossovers, <laughs> but some pretty good ones, too. <laughs> um, I One thing that's interested me is this kind of cycle we see both for Phil and for all the other people of kind of dealing with this kind of miraculous new thing in their life. In this case, it's superheroes where at first they're kind of wary of it. Then they embrace it. And then it kind of becomes mundane and they almost, you know, stop caring about it (laughs) or, or, and I think that's something that we see in our own lives with new things that come along that are kind of miraculous, like smartphones. You know, at first it's kind of like, "Ah, I've got my flip phone. I don't need that. (laughs) (laughs) Then we adopt it and it's amazing. And then we start complaining about it about it not doing exactly what we want it to do all the time. Yeah, it's that's really interesting. I I I I didn't think of it in that way, but it's a really great way to think about it. Or or even like uh, I think a larger scale one would be like the history of flight and the way people think about flight. Yeah. You know, the 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 first airplanes and then how special it is to actually fly on an airplane and you know people talk about how, you know, you people would dress up in their best clothes to go on a flight and now all anyone does is complain right. about flying. <laughs> <laughs> they go their jammies, and they and then they're they're just frustrated with the whole process, <laughs> and they don't realize that they're uh, actually flying. Yeah, like Louis C.K. has a famous uh, comedic that he did on uh, on Conan, I think it was, where he's like, everyone should constantly be just saying, "Wow, yeah, I'm sitting in a chair in the sky." <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was called "Everything's Awesome and Nobody's Happy." Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I think it's, it, it's a cycle that happens to all of us, and both individually and kind of larger culturally. This this kind of thing happens, and we see it laid out narratively for what would happen if there were kind of superheroes uh, for the everyman. The quote that I'm thinking of is, um, uh, I feel a certain sadness for those who do not grasp and appreciate the wonder and privilege. Uh, they're like passengers on an airplane who spend their time grumbling about the size of the packet of peanuts while they are soaring through the air far above the clouds, something ancient kings would have given all they possess to try and experience just once. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and again, like, think about how miraculous it is that we carry, you know, what we carry in our pocket, you know, in our phones, but when we, the, the probably our, our most spoken thing about it is probably complained about not being fast enough or not doing what we wanted to do. <laughs> Or why did it, you know, why is it shutting, you know, why did the app shut down when I was on it? Instead of, wow, this thing is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think Go ahead. there's something interesting in the context of, of the comic book being 20 plus years ago now. Essentially, what he is doing, like now it would be somebody's Instagram feed. Oh, what what Phil Sheldon's doing? Yeah, yeah. His be- his photojournalism and and publishing books with it and and all of that that would be an Instagram page. Yeah, there'd be like uh, two thousand people would post pictures of every single superhero fight that happened, right? With their cell phones. Yeah, we would see it from every angle, constantly. Yeah. And how much would we care? You know, like would it, oh, this is just clogging up my Facebook feed. <laughs> Or what did we still kind of have some odd wonder that there were superpowered beings going around? I don't know. It's kind of interesting. No, I think it's really interesting. This the the idea of wonder, right? Like to marvel at something, mm-hmm. and um, how quickly that can become mundane once it's constant. Yeah. So, so what? Is, I don't know. What does it say about us? Is is it? Do you think that that's always been the case? That humans have always been sort of 
easily wowed, but then that we become bored with things? Or is that a sign of, is that a product of this, of living in this time? Right. When, uh, I mean, kind of the basics of human life didn't change a whole lot. Right. (laughs) Um, I, I saw my son loves airplanes and helicopters. Like he's obsessed with them. And there's an IMAX documentary about uh-huh. airplanes about it's, it's called living in the age of airplanes or living in the age of flight or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and at the start of it, it's narrated by Harrison Ford, but he goes through kind of a timeline of the fastest humans could travel. Right. And it's like for most of human history, this thing doesn't bump up, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's a flat line. Uh, and then you, you know, you hit, uh, you know, trains and cars and there's this, this blip and then it, you know, it's, it goes quite high once we get aviation, yeah. you know, happening. But in the whole of human history, that's like, there's a little spike at the very end. <laughs> I mean, it's a giant spike, but it's at the very tiny, tiny infinitesimal clip of the end of right. human history is where there's an actual spike in things changing. And when you think about the way technology and everything is like, it's, it's so constantly evolving for us, but really that's a phenomenon of the last, you know, several decades for it to be changing as quickly as it is, but really last century for any kind of technological advancement. Right. I just think about, I, I don't know if I mentioned this. So the other day I went through and watched the top 10 most viewed YouTube videos of all time. It's a, is Charlie bit my finger on there? No, it's not. They're all music videos. It's in the top. It's like in the top 15. Charlie bit my finger is, is the number one, uh, video on YouTube, uh, that is not a music video. But the first video is this, the Korean dance one is a, a Ganyam style. That's the number one. And it has yeah. over two and a half billion hits, views. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Speak, uh, speaking of like uh, marveling. <laughs> I just can't. It's like an imaginary number. Yeah. <laughs> like how how's that been played that many times? Yeah. So there's like, there's a couple of K- Katy Perry videos. There's a Taylor Swift video. There's a Lady Gaga video. Um, I think, I can't remember where the highest, uh, there's a Kylie Rae Jepsen video. But like, they're so pointless, and there's nothing to. There's no wonder in in those. I mean, they're fun, but they're not amazing. They're just silly, and and yet we're like constantly drawn back to look at this this thing that is really like pretty meaningless. <laughs> if I mean not like oh, let's all. all right. Well, Todd, 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 we're on our 30 something episode of talking about pop culture. Right. I know, but, <laughs> so, <laughs> but even like, I, I mean, I don't well, know. Let's be careful where we're casting aspersions <laughs> on what's meaningful and what's not. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. People repeat viewing. That's a core, core audience. <laughs> it's people who repeat view things we talk about. <laughs> I, I don't know. It just, they're, and I'm sure that I'm in this because I'm one of those two and a half billion views, right? Mm hmm. But it's not, it's not like looking at the face of God, you know, or like staring at the stars or, or even or like, seeing the man I mean, of steel fly, of- you know, a man of flame fly across the sky. It's just dancing. Or, right. But, um, it makes me think of, um, in the earliest days of film, a lot of what would go around, I mean, this is before even narrative film was really taking off was things like, um, waterfalls or, the train. or workers leaving a factory and people were fascinated by this because you never really saw anything that was, you know, less than 20 miles from where you were born. Sure. 
<laughs> for for a lot of people, not obviously, obviously everyone. For a lot of people, like where you were born, that was pretty much how much of the earth you were going to see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so things like waterfalls would be amazing and would inspire kind of marveling and awe. But a lot of those, because like you said, the world we live in now, that sense of spectacle on things like that is gone. Yeah, I guess I, I guess what I'm asking is. When I see a flash mob do Ganyam style, how is that feeling similar to or different than the what I would feel if I saw the Human Torch fly across the sky? And why is it that? Because there are amazing videos on YouTube of things that I think I think everybody would agree are awesome, like in the truest sense of the word, right? Awesome, like awe-inspiring. Right. Like that cat jump that syncs up perfectly. <laughs> with, <laughs> with sail, sail from a You're just nation. making fun of me now. <laughs> I'm not. No, I mean, Do you uh, understand what I'm saying? Yes. No, like there are things where people show awesome things about science or when NASA puts out right. their videos of showing the Earth NASA's- from this view that no one in human history has had. And now anyone who has an internet connection could access this and see, uh, you know, the, the full scale of the Earth in the solar system. Right. That sort of thing. And yet, we're not drawn to that. We don't go back and watch it over and over and over again and just say, man, look at this amazing earth that we live on. <laughs> we just like go watch more, uh, pop culture in, in all of its forms. And, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. So this isn't me like, you know, sh- wait, waving my finger of scorn at the world. It's me asking a really, I hope, honest question about my own ability to appreciate the truly awesome. I don't know what, I don't know what else, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> Where we landed on that. <laughs> I was like, no. But I guess we should get back to Marvels. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's a question worth thinking about. I just don't know that it's a question that we're going to have a, be able to, you know, wrap up. No, about, for sure. Uh, for sure. For, for sure not. So let's continue. <laughs> Phil Sheldon. Phil Sheldon. Well, one other thing that I just want to say about the way superheroes get treated in this, uh, the one was kind of the way, uh, I think we deal with miraculous things or, or things that should cause us wonder. But the other one is it made me think about how we go through this cycle, uh, particularly in the, from the second to third issue, where in the second issue people are just, you know, enamored with Captain America, that he's back from World War II, and, you know, they, they see him jumping over cars and, and everyone's just in awe of him, to the third issue in which, um, kind of the tabloid press is having its heyday with superheroes and there's a lot more controversy around them. And it actually made me think about in Harry Potter, uh, Rita Skeeter and kind of the, the flow of celebrity <laughs> that Harry Potter goes yes. through, which I'm pretty darn sure JK Rowling was basing on her own experience with the press oh, yeah. <laughs> in becoming a phenomenon that was adored by everyone. And then the tabloids started to kind of <laughs> try and dig up dirt and, and trash on her. And so uh, I think, um, there's also an aspect of celebrity culture and these cycles that we go through with these pop culture figures in, in our own lives and the way they get treated kind of by the internet. Like you can almost at this point kind of put a clock on it when there's a new really popular singer or something like just, you know, here comes the waves of ad- adulation and now let's wait for the backlash yep. <laughs> uh, to come. Well, and, and this would have been. Years before that cycle started well, I, I in 94. The cycle's been compressed a lot in our day. <laughs> where Yeah, as, a, as an internet phenomenon. Right, um, but I think the cycle always existed in the way... I mean, celebrity tabloids go back to the golden age of sure. Hollywood and, and, and tracking those stars' lives, and they would adore the rising stars, and they'd give them, you know, the, the 
front cover photo spread and all these stories about their life and how they're overcoming obstacles to become these famous movie actors, actors or actresses. And then the same tabloids would make money in future years by, uh, you know, turning into gossip rags about, you know, what's, what's wrong with these stars lives right. and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's, that's, a. Uh... I think you're right on. Uh, I really, I really want to talk about um, Phil's family, and I also want to talk about this uh, issue too with the X Men. So okay. I don't know which one you want to do those, which one of those you want to do first. But let's let's tackle the second issue that deals explicitly with the X Men, and then we can talk about the kind of wrap up with Phil's family. Yeah. Again. So I've spoken before on this uh, on this uh, podcast about why I love the X Men. Um, this the way that they're treated in this is very different from well how how do I say this I mean the the treatment of the X Men is always the same everybody hates them uh, which some people say I mean, this is always the interesting conundrum and, and like I've had conversations with people that say that's an interesting or that's an interesting aspect of the X Men but it doesn't really make sense in a world where people adore Captain America and Thor you know and these other figures but I think this does a really good job of encapsulating why that can still strike yeah, that balance. I agree. Universe. I totally agree. It's, it's, um, 100% believable, uh, the anger that people feel or the, the fear that people have for, um, mutants that they don't have for, you know, Captain America or human torch. Um, go ahead. um, as I was gonna say, it's been a little while since I reread this issue, but I actually was able to exchange a few emails with Kurt Busiek when I was writing my dissertation. Nice on the X-Men, uh, particularly about this and his, some of his thoughts on the X-Men. And I, I don't think I, I definitely did not know this when I was first, um, reading Marvel's, uh, the first time I read it, but, um, like that sequence where there's a mob that attacks the X-Men and Phil kind of becomes right. a part of it. That comes from the very first X-Men comic book in which there is any prejudice expressed towards mutants. When the X-Men comic book first appears, for the first year of issues, it was bi-monthly, so at least the first six, uh, and I think even seven issues, like, they're kind of adored. Like, people are fans, they want autographs from hmm. them in some of the crowd scenes. Uh, and then an issue, I want to say it's eight, is there's this turn, and there's no narrative explanation given. It's just all of a sudden people are scared of mutants, but they're not scared of other superheroes. Huh. <laughs> which becomes the defining metaphor, you know, for the X-Men, or a right. defining characteristic of the series. Uh, and the scene where Phil is part of this crowd that throws a brick at the X-Men, it's lifted directly from that issue of the X-Men, which again, I think is issue number eight. Um, and that's where that metaphor starts to actually take shape. And then the, when there's that night of panic in right. New York, where, uh, there's this anti-mutant hysteria, it's because of the Sentinels that are flying around. And that's, um, from a few issues later, it's called the Sentinel Trilogy, when they first introduced the idea of these, these mutant hunting robots that are, are kind of built by the government because the government is is fearful of mutants. And so it, it's it's laying out a lot of where that concept of the X-Men actually very first took root in the series is is um the scenes that they they lifted for this and inserted Phil Sheldon kind of into into various roles. Yeah, I'm just a, I'm a total sucker for a good X-Men story. Um they they just hardly show up in this. Um and so, you know, Phil's there and he gets sort of swept up in this mob that's chasing, it's like a Cyclops and Angel and Beast, Beast and, uh, and Marvel Girl. Is it Miss Marvel or is it, uh, it's Marvel, oh, Marvel Girl, Girl and Iceman, Ice right? And they, um, and he actually picks up a brick and throws it and hits one of them and, um, 
and is sort of shocked at his own this own his own kind of violent reaction to them uh and is kind of contemplating his fear of that it goes home and um his his girls earlier he notices that his girls are uh taking table scraps and he thinks that they must be giving them to some stray dog or cat and then he gets in the house and uh goes in the basement and sees this little this little mutant girl she has these huge, huge eyes and this kind of gaunt face that reminds him of um, of the prisoners at the when the prisoners from Auschwitz when they were freed. When he was in World War II, uh, so he, he, in that issue that's from World War II era, we see him photograph all the superheroes, but it does also say that he did go across uh, and covered the war front. Right. And so, and I think we get a flashback of him actually at Auschwitz. So there's this beautiful, there's this beautiful kind of parallel between this, this little girl, uh, the face of this little girl with her great big tears and, uh, and these prisoners coming out of Auschwitz and he realizes what a monster he's been. Um, but then the, the part that killed me, I mean, the part that like really grabs my heart, you know, is when the Sentinels come. And he realizes, oh my gosh, my family, because the Sentinels can sense mutants. And so if there's a mutant in his house, then the Sentinels will go and destroy his house and destroy his family. And he's desperately trying to get back to his house. And I was just completely caught up in it. Well, and I mean, you mentioned that the girl's face reminds him of the prisoners leaving Auschwitz, but the whole idea of hiding this mutant in his basement, it reminds me of oh, yeah. so many of the... The Holocaust stories, be it, you know, um, the Diary of Anne Frank or the Book Thief, you know, any of those stories where they're hiding a Jew and, uh, you know, from the Nazis and what that does to the household and they feel it's the right thing to do, but there's also this fear and the protection for the family itself. Like all those get rolled up into this one. Yeah. Issue. And I think that it's, I just think that it's captured really, really beautifully. And then when, when he gets there and she's gone and she's left this little letter written in crayon. And this like little girl's writing with the misspelled words, um, man, it's really, it, it's, uh, one of those moments when you're reading something and it just sort of pushes up to the next level and you go, okay, yeah, this is, this is, this is really, truly great. Right. And this is, I mean, the girl had no idea about the sentinels or anything. So she just happened to have chosen the wrong night of all nights to finally leave. But the note says, dear Mrs. Sheldon, thank you for everything, but I have to leave. I do not want your family to get hurt because of me. I took some food. Thank you for the new clothes. Love Maggie. And then she's going and, out into this just hellstorm of, of anti-mutant hysteria and the, and the sentinels are flying around trying to hunt up or, you know, gather up the mutants. It's just terrifying. The thought of this little tiny girl who can't hide the fact that she's a mutant because she has these great big huge eyes and kind of an alien looking face. And she kind of looks like a Greedo, don't you think? Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the, the girl is actually modeled on an old EC comic, which uh, was a line in the fifties that did a lot of horror comic books. And, um, in the notes that Alex Ross has provided on the series, he says that the original script had it be a, a mutant boy and it didn't really have a whole lot of description about what he looked like, and Alex Ross says that I kept thinking about this old uh, comic book by an artist named Wally Wood that was called The Loathsome, which was about a little girl that kind of gets hunted because she looks different and alien, too. Uh, and, and there's kind of a lynch mob that comes after her. 
And the um, there's a panel that is provided in my copy of this. Uh, um, it, there's some notes at the end of Alex Ross explaining his art process, and they have a, a, a panel from that actual comic book, and it looks exactly like the girl that he's painted oh, in really? the comic. Yes. Um, so it is inspired by a uh, 1953 comic book that I had, I would imagine, a similar kind of prejudice theme to it. Um, uh, and I wanted to read the, like, the, the end of this issue is one of the daughters coming and saying, Daddy, is Maggie going to be all right? And all I can say is, I don't know, I hope so. And that's, you know, the, the I hope so is the yeah. end of that issue. <laughs> and he has no idea. And the readers never find out what happened to Maggie. It's just heartbreaking. Uh, so we're supposed to be talking about a great character and a great story. What do you think of Phil as a character? I think he's one of, I mean, we, we go to this over and over again, but those characters that have those flaws that we can understand are ones that we can relate to and really, um, I think, connect with. And I think this whole series and Phil in particular kind of end with this inter- interesting moment where it's his kind of retirement and his kind of giving up his obsession with this world of uh-huh. marbles. It can simultaneously be kind of uh, defeatist in a way, I guess, or kind of a downer, but it's also him like embracing his family instead of his obsession with work, <laughs> which is to be celebrated. <laughs> uh, so it, it kind of ends on this, this odd note that I think every time I finish it, I'm like, I, I don't know if that was a happy ending. It's like or not. you don't quite know what to make of it. Right. Cause individually, I think you want to celebrate that he's, you know, he's hugging his wife and kind of, we've seen him become so obsessed with work that he has neglected his, his wife and his children. And so you're happy to see that end, but at the same time, it kind of is, if not giving up on that sense of wonder that he kind of keeps trying to rekindle when the world is turning against, against Marvel's, uh, he's at least passing the torch on to kind of a younger generation and saying, this isn't my fight yeah. anymore. Um, I get like, I can't, I can't hack <laughs> anymore <laughs> in this world, which again, sounds kind of defeatist. Uh, so it, it is an interesting note, but uh, he's a flawed character. Obviously he becomes so obsessed with his work and he has this kind of complex relationship with his work and his family that ebbs and flows. Um, he makes efforts to be with his family, but he's always thinking about his work. And there are times where he walks away from his work to go be with his family. Uh, but at the same time, like all those moments and all those contradictions, they, they feel natural. It is some kind of a comment on creativity and sort of conflict and creativity or the, you know, the, like the tortured artist. And it seems like at some level, it's pretty, it seems pretty rare to find a really, truly great artist who also is just, you know has a really happy family life and they're content. They don't have any addictions or, you know, they just, or demons, yeah, chasing demons them. chasing them. They just wake up, uh, you know, they go to work at eight, they come home at five, they leave their, they, they leave their work at the office. And it just seems so rare to see that. Um, well, I, I don't, I'm wondering, is it rare for that to exist or is it rare for that to be a story that gets told? I don't know. Like I don't the, know. The ones that are, on the more extreme edge of their life are probably the ones who become more fascinating. But <sighs> so, so we, we share those stories or we, we marvel that uh, marvel. <laughs> <laughs> we marvel that someone who is, you know, that can be so plagued could produce this great work. Whereas there's probably lots of great works of art that we consume that we don't think about I... the person who produced it because they just kind of had a mundane, normal life. 
I don't know. Do you do you think? Do you ever think? Oh, how could it be possible that someone so plagued by, uh, you know, whatever could have produced this? I would think the exact opposite. If I see something amazing, my first reaction is, I wonder what's going on, like what their inner demons are <laughs> that make them produce this thing. And I would marvel at somebody who who was unremarkable in in that in that sense that had really no you know no demons in their in their closet I don't know, skeletons I don't know what I'm saying <laughs> uh, who was able to produce something amazing it just seems like and maybe maybe it is that we that we elevate the work of of these kind of tortured geniuses or at least the backstory behind the work when they are tortured geniuses. Whereas some other work, maybe we just kind of consume it and, you know, we, we, we don't think about how it was made, but when we know it, there was a torture genius behind it, we, we, we talk about that more, dissect that more. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I guess, I guess part of me is wondering, so when he retires at the end and he just says, you know, I'm hanging up my guns, I'm done with this. And he just puts his arm around his wife and the little paper, paper boy is there and he says, Hey, you join in the picture too. Who, and that kid is somebody, right? Yes, he becomes Ghost Rider. Oh, okay. <laughs> On his bike, of course. <laughs> right. So there's a little, at the end, he's like, this is it. I'm done with Marvels forever. I'm just going to you know, live my life with behind a white picket fence in suburbia with my wife and my kids. And look, here's a paperboy, like this iconic Americana. <laughs> take a picture. Like This is going to be the last photograph I want to be a part of. <laughs> you know, take a picture of this. What's your name, son? And he says, Danny Ketch. And Danny Ketch becomes, is one of the people in Marvel Comics who has been Ghost Rider. The second one. <laughs> After Johnny Blaze, which is a much more on the nose yeah, really. <laughs> alter ego for yeah for Ghost but, Rider. Who, if you're unfamiliar, Ghost Rider it has a flaming skull, and he rides on a <laughs> so motorcycle, not a paperboy bike. Right. Yes, but uh, so I, I don't know. I I I feel your I feel the conflict also at the end of this, uh, where I think you know is is. I mean, this whole book has really been about not the superheroes, but about the average man. And the last couple pages are kind of the celebration of the everyday life, I guess. It's like the end of Candide so, when they're just like, well, let's just go plant our garden. And, <laughs> and like, that's what the good life is. The good life is not chasing around this, the amazing or, you know, trying to find the most marvelous, amazing thing. But the good life is really just, having a family and having a house and your white picket fence. And, and so are we celebrating that or is there something of sadness in the fact that this, this story's over and there, we, we don't get any more Phil Sheldon, no more of the, of this amazing art that he's given us. And can it be doing both of those? Yeah. Would it be possible to just have a really happy family life and also produce this great book about the superheroes? And it seems like this one, this book is saying no. Right, because he completely passes all of his files and everything onto his assistant and says, it's on you now. You go make the sequel to Marvels or turn it into a documentary. Right, if you, it seems to me that one thing that this book might be saying, and I, don't, I haven't even thought this all the way through, is if you want the great art, then you have to give up your family. And it's, 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 you can't have both. Does that, is that too extreme? But at the same time, he has had both. Yeah, but he's always conflicted about about leaving his wife and and his girls and. Well, 
I think even if you're not <laughs> at torture, you know, chasing down superheroes, there's going to be conflicts between your yeah. work life and your yeah, own life. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, and how you divide that time. Sure. And, you know, the great American novel you're writing in your free time in the background <laughs> and all the other things. The great American novel that one of us may or may not be writing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I, I agree that there's, there's some, <clears throat> there's, but I mean, he gets the hero shot. I mean, the the end of Marvels is Phil Sheldon kind of being given, being photographed in a way he always photographed yeah. heroes, and kind of having the heroic shot with him. And he's happy it. about it. And, yes, he. This is a weight off of his shoulders. <laughs> there is no, there is no conflict in him. I mean, he's not like, oh, I'm gonna really miss chasing around and getting my eye knocked out with bricks, and you know. Well, and he kind of, I mean, so he, he has this kind of epiphany when he's retiring that, and this is after he's seen Gwen Stacy die and the news is on and there's just, there's always another superhero battle. And he just kind of says, there's always going to be a next one. And I've chased them enough. Right. At some point I just have to. <laughs> like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to, I mean, it's kind of like you said last, last week. Uh, I'm not going to consume all the media. I'm going to consume every great story that's, that's been told. And he's saying, I am not going to. Uh, I'm not going to take a photograph of every superhero fight because there's always going to be a next one, and I've done enough. Yeah, we haven't even talked about Gwen Stacy. I don't. It's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the X Men one is brutal, and this one's brutal. Uh, like I said, a lot of people say that Gwen Stacy. So the story, and I don't know if I've said this on the on this podcast. Maybe I have when we've done another comic book one. But the story is that Marvel produced, like, wrote this fight between. Green Goblin and Gwen Stacy, and they had in the art, Gwen Stacy gets thrown off of the bridge, and then there's this panel of Spider-Man catching her with his webbing, and then the next panel is, is I mean, maybe there's a couple of panels, but then there's a shot at the end of the issue of Spider-Man holding Gwen Stacy in his arms, and because Spider-Man has a mask, you can't tell his emotions, and so there's a debate in the office of do we say, is like the last panel of him say, yelling, she's alive, Oh. And holding her body, or do we say you killed her? I think is what is what the actual panel is in the comic book. And then the debate, like the, the choice, really became: do we add a sound effect of the panel of Spider-Man catching her? Do we put a snap next right. to her neck? Like, do we add that visual, you know, sound effect in the way comic books do? And if we put it in there, the last the last panel of this comic book is going to be Spider-Man yelling, "You killed her." If we don't, the last panel is going to be Spider-Man yelling, <laughs> "She's alive." And they they chose to kill her, and a lot of people say that's the, the kind of the end of the Silver Age of of comic books, and the beginning of what is either called the Bronze Age or the Dark Age, <laughs> going into the '80s when there's a lot of the you know the Watchmen and the Dark Knight and a lot of grim and gritty style yeah. superheroes versus that kind of four color bright shiny early Silver Age in the '60s and '70s. It feels like un it's like unforgivable to me. Her death every time I think about it, it just breaks my heart again <laughs> like how could you do that to her you you know yeah. cr- creators <laughs> it's uh i don't know it's if i could go back in time and change one thing <laughs> in not in the, the universe but if i could go back in time <laughs> in, in this fictional, in marvel, the fictional universe. marvel universe i would give peter parker gwen stacy back um this is just an interesting thing uh there was a recent big Spider-Man storyline called the Spider-Verse in which all these alternate dimension versions of Spider-Man or spider superheroes 
were converging in this massive crossover for Spider-Man comic books. And one that was incredibly popular and is actually now surviving the event and having her own comic book series was... They they called her Spider-Gwen, but it was in a universe where Gwen Stacy got bit by the spider instead of Uh Peter Parker. And for some reason, in this moment right now, that idea of having Gwen Stacy being... The spider superhero has really resonated, resonated with, with the, the comic book readers. And it's one of the breakout characters that Marvel's had in, I mean, Marvel has this kind of constant stable of superheroes and it's rare to see another one kind of break through and get their own comic book title because they're always going to be publishing, right. you know, X-Men comic books and Iron Man and Thor. And there's not a whole lot of room in their publishing schedule for a new title. But Spider-Gwen has taken off in a way that it seems like the publisher wasn't really expecting. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was just an odd confluence of like the popular consciousness of Gwen Stacy because of the recent movies and, and her popularity in the movies. Everyone loved Emma Stone. Yes, and I yes. did too. As Gwen Stacy. And I haven't even, like, seen, I haven't even about... seen the second film because I don't want to. <laughs> I, I will say the, the Peter Parker-Gwen Stacy part of those films is easily, easily the best thing about those films. The rest of it can be a bit of a mess, but whenever Peter Parker's talking to Gwen Stacy in those films, well, I was I thinking, it. man, maybe this is their chance. It's an alternate universe. Why don't we let, why don't, like, <laughs> let's just let her live. And then somebody told me, oh yeah, she dies in it. And I was like, no. And, and it, you know, like House of M, House of M is this really famous X-Men uh, comic in which uh, the Scarlet Witch is messing with reality and she gives basically everybody what they've always wanted. And Peter Parker's with Gwen. And then he has to wake up from that dream. And it just, it just kills me. There's a really beautiful mini series, or it might've just been a one shot. It was called Spider-Man blue. It's a mini series. It was a mini series. Uh, Loeb and sale. Yes. Uh, these two creators named Tim sale and Jeff Loeb, who they've, they've worked together quite a few times. Uh, but basically this is, uh, kind of saying, even the, at that point in Marvel continuity, Spider-Man was married to Mary Jane. That got undone through some mystical means because <laughs> Marvel wanted a single, single Peter Parker, but they didn't want him to get divorced. <laughs> so they kind of made it so he never actually got married. Uh, but they tell the story where he's married to Mary Jane, but deep in his heart, he's still just in love with Gwen. Like he's never gotten over her death. And he, and he drops a flower from that bridge every year. Oh and- gosh. It just, it just, it really, I mean, I, I usually don't get so worked up about, about those kinds of things, but there's something about Gwen and that, and the way that I like, he had her, you know, he had right. her. If, 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 if they had killed her in any other way, it would have been better. But d- then the <sighs> fact that it was his webbing catching her is what broke her neck. Not that she hit the ground because Green Goblin threw him, threw her. It's because of the way Spider-Man, in desperation, tried to save her. Is what and you know that he him. saved well, a then, thousand people in the same way, but but she's the one that her neck has to snap. Ah, it just it kills me. It kills me every single time. Well, and that issue is, I mean, they just they keep breaking your heart through it because he's pulling her up and he thinks she's just unconscious oh. until and he's and he's you know doing his, his Spider-Man internal monologue and he's super jovial. <sighs> As, as he is, and he's, you've done it again, Spidey, you've saved the girl, and, and he's pulling her up, and then she gets to the top, and she's not waking up, and, and he goes through that complete change in emotions. Right. Between panels. It, it's, like, Uncle Ben, even Uncle Ben, I'm like, I'm okay with Uncle Ben's death, like, I, I have come to terms with it, 
but I don't, I don't think I ever will <laughs> with Gwen Stacy. I just, it, it is one of the saddest things in all of fiction <laughs> for me. I don't know why it gets me so bad, but when I saw it coming, when I was reading it today, I just thought, no, no, I don't want to read this. I don't want to see this. <laughs> and then it happened. And I thought, yeah, they did it. And it kills me, breaks my heart. So anyway, Phil and his family. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we meant to be talking about. Um, I, I, this comic book is very much more about Phil and his relationship with Marvels than it is with Phil and his family. But I think it's interesting that his family kind of defines a lot of the moments within the series still, even though he spends less time with them than he does on his, his you know, photography and his projects. For example. Uh, so like his girls changing his view on mutants. Mm. Uh, the defining moments of the first issue are him kind of becoming engaged and then calling it off because he can't understand the world anymore and then deciding, you know what, this is the world. I still want love. <laughs> I still want a family. <laughs> uh, so, he, uh, so he, you know, he proposes again in the third issue, which has Galactus, the main, the uh-huh. main beat is Galactus uh, in the Fantastic Four. He says, none of this matters. They're going to survive or it's not, but I want to be with my family right. either way. And so he abandons, you know, taking photographs of all the action, which is what his life's calling has been up to that moment to go walk because the subways are down and, you know, there's no taxis or anything. So he has to walk all the way out to the suburbs to get to his family. But that's what he does in this moment of world crisis. And then, you know, in the, in the final one, you know, the, his moment, his heroic moment, I guess, is him saying, I'm hanging this up and I'm, you know, I'm being the husband and the father that I always should have been. Yeah, and uh, see, now I'm like, I feel like I'm going to pull a 180 here because just you just marching through that made me realize he actually really is a good husband and father really throughout this. I mean, he does have a job to do, and there's conflict in the fact that he can't always be with his family, but he he sure gives it a good, <laughs> like the good, the old college <laughs> well, I mean, try, I, I chose, you know, he's not... I, ch- I chose the most positive one, so there are some moments where like he's at the zoo and... Like, he runs away from his family on this family outing that he's promised his kids to, because there's a uh, name word right. or, you know, something like that. So there are some of those moments. Um, but I think in each each issue, you probably have some of those negative moments, but also some of those positive yeah, moments. Yeah, I agree. You're just seeing this push and pull that is kind of defining his life. Yeah, he's not, um, I don't know, <laughs> like uh, Johnny Cash or, <laughs> you know, he's not, he's not like a, a drug-addicted you know, maniac, abusive person. <laughs> Philanderer. Yeah, no, he's, <laughs> he's a devoted husband and father who has a really tough job that's super demanding, both with time and also just uh, like emotionally and physically. That's draining to try to chase, chase down every superhero fight that happens over. Well, and he lost an eye. Over what, a few, uh, several decades. I mean. Yeah, th- this kind of feels like a go. I mean, we know it's clearly starting in, you know, early 40s. And I want to say it's ending in the seventies. Um, and I think he does a, I think he does a pretty good job. So whatever I said before, you can either erase it now or (laughs) just pretend that I never said it. (laughs) Or just accept that there's some complexity here and, uh, he's both. (laughs) There are times where he's not the best husband and father, where he's more focused on work and he's spending all his time in the dark room developing the photos when the wife's trying to have dinner. Um, but there are also, Times where he just walks away from that because he realizes the most important thing in his life is his family. Yeah, but I think even at his worst, he's not so bad. Right. There, there are worse <laughs> husbands. <laughs> Definitely. In, in popular culture, we see examples of worse husbands in right. stories. And in real life. Uh, than what is. Yeah. 
And yeah, the worst thing you can say about him is that he is overly, I mean, it's kind of like the, in a job interview, like what, what's one of your faults? Oh, I'm too dedicated to work. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, for him, that's true. That's one of his worst faults is he becomes overly obsessed or dedicated to this yeah. job. But he never, I'm, I'm trying to think if, if he ever puts his family in, like in harm's way because of that. I mean, the only time his family is really in any danger is the, the night of the anti-mutant hysteria when he's housed right. in the basement. Um, but that was more his daughter's doing, <laughs> you know, than right. his and, But that's also, that has nothing to do with his job, right? Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. like... It's not like he's driving the family, you know, they're out on outing and he drives them in their car. <laughs> like, if he, if there's a battle that he's going to, he leaves his wife and kids where they're at. Right. You know, and goes to it. So, yeah, I, I, I feel like... Uh, I've got a, I've got a healthy amount of respect for him. All right. Well, any other final thoughts? I think so. I really I really enjoyed this read. It's it's a quick it's a quick one. Yeah, I uh, I think this is one that if you are more uh, versed with the kind of the Marvel history, you may kind of say, oh, this background fight is you know from this issue, these you know this storyline in the Avengers or this storyline in the Fantastic Four or that trial that he's taking his photographs at is from this storyline in uh, Iron Man. Or any of those things, but you don't need that. I think they do a, a good enough job of. I mean, the focus is on Phil Sheldon, and the rest of this is really just the wallpaper of his life. So right. you don't need to know how the trial of the Black Widow ends. Yeah, and or, or and none. I knew who all of the. Uh, I didn't even know who all the characters were, but the main characters, I knew who they were. I haven't. The only really early Marvel stuff that I've read is X Men stuff, and I haven't even read the earliest. Uh, so. I didn't know I had not read any of the the stuff that's referenced here and I really enjoyed it. And I have read much of that and I enjoyed it too. <laughs> so I, wherever you're at, you you can enjoy this story. Uh well I guess that wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us and you can subscribe to the Protagonist podcast and iTunes and please leave us a review. It helps with our viewership and also our feelings of self-worth. And if links to things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com and you can also find a list of all of our shows there. And you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or, or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We are also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mac, at Jay Dorowski, and at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And if you'd like to buy a topic for us to discuss, you can go click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. And also please just uh, share the word of the protagonist podcast to friends and family or through your social media. We, Like I've said a couple of times this episode, we have no advertising budget. The only way this thing is going to spread is through word of mouth. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please uh, share it on Facebook or Twitter or any other social media. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and another great story. Oh. So long. Here's what I don't understand about the Legos. It's not like you're on a cruise ship. Like, the room should be stable. The Lego should not be like magically, you know, rocking and rolling around on the table. How do you know I'm not on a cruise ship, Todd?